um, I have a £50 note, and I have never been in possession of a £50 note before. Um, have you not? I'm not going to. am not going to tell you the story of no, because obviously it would it would go straight into the bank. What um, about when you were drug dealing? Um, when I was a f- drug dealer slash footballer, the only two groups of people who constantly <laughs> have possession. How much paracetamol were you walking around with you that you needed a fifty pound note? So I don't know what to do with it because people people look down on you when you have a fifty pound note because if you don't look like a footballer or immediately are obviously a drug dealer, what what do you do with it? Can, can I don't. Know, I, th- I think just just to be just just on behalf of our, uh, the portion of our listenership that are drug dealers. I think the point of being a drug dealer is that you don't look like a drug dealer. Oh, right. Okay. Well, in that case, I'll get away think, with it. So I think if fine. you were a very obvious drug dealer, you, you would not be very successful. So what, what, um, what advice would you have? I mean, given, given that I'm, you know, not, not venturing out very often to, to actually be able to do anything with this said denomination of, uh, British currency, what, what's, um, has anybody ever had one before? I've had a fifty-pound note before. What did you do with it? Did you rip it up and use it to snort cocaine? I think <laughs> that is not something we encourage, or indeed have ever heard of before. I think I I got it from a cash machine. I think I went to a cash machine. I must have got like a hundred pounds out. I must have had some sort of high rolling to do. <laughs> and I don't often go to cash machines and get hundred pounds out. I want to make that abundantly clear. Twenty pounds. Um, I think. Were you walking? I'd, I'd have been walking uneasy if I had a hundred pounds oh, in my pocket. Yeah, whenever I'd, 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 I'd be really, I reckon, really conscious. I reckon I'd get nervous if I've got more than like forty quid in cash on me. You'd be like, no, 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 that, that person's looking at me. Why they're looking yeah. at me? Do they know what I'm carrying? This will be uh, the day I get mugged. <laughs> I think I went to a pub and spent it there. A pub. I think pub. A pub might be your best bet for spending a fifty pound note. The worst piece of money I've ever had was after a trip to Jersey just before the pandemic. Jersey, for those who don't know, is a small tax enclave just off the French coast. And I went to Jersey and they have their own money in Jersey, uh, the Jersey £5 note and £10 note. And, but you can spend sterling as well. So I, I paid for something in cash, not with, 50, not with a 50, probably with a 10. Got £5 change in the form of a Jersey fiver. And they said, oh, and I, I sort of, Said, oh, what's that? And they went, oh, it's 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 a Jersey five pound. No, it's fine. It's it. Don't worry. It's it's legal tender. <laughs> but if you try and spend it in a shop in, um, if you try and spend it in a shop in Britain, they look at you like you've produced a really bad forgery because it looks nothing like a five pound note. It's blue, not green. So I, it, it's now just in my wallet because I can't. I literally, I literally can't spend it. It's, not, it's very nice, upsetting. What a nice souvenir from your holiday. Well, I'm considering getting it framed as a reminder not to go back to Jersey. <laughs> This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, Bird's Eye Potato Waffles, they're waffly versatile, and Stephen Wyeth. Wah! Body form, body formed for you. Um, now, for reasons that are incredibly boring, we are recording this podcast not long after last week. So I'm going to say a preemptive and hopefully accurate thank you for being so understanding about our postponing of the live show. Uh, this podcast will be going out in the week of the live show and indeed the day before the original date of the live show. If you're making plans to go to London, hopefully you've received the email and have pocketed that ticket for a future date. If there have been, for example, ugly levels of opprobrium, um, then they will not be reflected here or indeed anywhere at any time. The food is... I'm yes? eating a clementine right now with my coffee. Oh, that's a dreadful combination. It's what a bad doing? combination, but it's all... I, I'm sort of... I'm tethered 
to the breakfast bar by my headphones and the microphone and I'm I'm basically consuming what I can reach. I'm just Pres- having a banana with my with my pint of lager. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible combinations of drink and food. Let us know. Set Coffee and a clementine. Are you the kind of people like I am that only uh, eats satsumas or clementines, depending on on how posh you think you are, um, at Christmas? Because for some reason that has been a tradition. No, I eat either satsumas or clementines, depending exclusively on how easy they are to peel. Cannot stand a piece of citrus fruit that does not have enough slack in it to really peel it easily. Stephen's still going, so I'm concerned about the one that he's currently eating. It's going to take weeks. When when Bodhi starts eating solids, you will make a lot of food decisions based on how easy they are to give to your child. And something that is the easy peelers in the supermarket will become your best friend. All right. So so for a 38-year-old gentleman and indeed a six-month-old child, those two have exactly the same desires. From I, a, from a I'm not 38, but thank you. And, and now 39 year old. Now 39. And in the course of, of that sentence. Um, the, <laughs> Congratulations. I'm suspicious of the easy peeler because I don't believe you'd ever go to a, like a forest and see like an easy peeler tree. Does it feel genetically modified? Although now I'm thinking. an easy peeler. What do satsumas grow on? They grow on trees. Is it a tree? Is it a satsuma tree? Small trees. Okay. Yeah, you're not you're not going to a like an orchard and seeing or an orangery and seeing oh there's the there's the easy peeler tree. So it's not there's just something I I, I wouldn't mind if they called them easy peeler satsumas, but uh, but I'm not having them just as easy peelers. Interesting fact, the Smith family have recently taken the de- the, the decision to cut down their food miles, and now only eat European food. Uh, which will be an issue with satsumas because as we all know they come from the Shizuoka part of Japan originally. We- we are we are torn on what to do about bananas. Kate said to me, I told Kate that we we're doing this, and then she said, well, what are we doing about bananas? Because bananas famously don't grow in Europe. And that you uh, have with your pints of lager. And and if you're having a pint of, pint of lager, you, you've got to have a banana. The um, And then I pointed out that neither Kate nor Ed like bananas, and so, f- so therefore it wasn't really an issue, because I'm just happy not to eat bananas. Very calorific as well, bananas. So if you're actually trying to reduce your calorie, calorie intake uh, of a day, then, then a bana- getting rid of banana is a very important part of that process. Next time that Nikki makes us her famous banoffee pie, I look forward to Rory rejecting his slice. You can no, just so take this, the bananas out. <laughs> so noted here, moral here authority. Come, here come the, here come the, I'm just, uh, no, no, well, I've got one that you want to The caveats, here they come. Noted moral authority Robert Smith went through a veggie phase and I said to him, mm, okay, that's fine. More power to you. I felt it was, he was doing it a little bit, you know, he was, he was trying to make me feel bad to an extent. And, um, but he said that his principle was that he wasn't going to be a prick about it. That was his, 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 his absolute principle was, I'm a vegetarian, but I'm not going to be a prick about it. And the way that he wouldn't be a prick about it was that if, if he went to somebody's house and they served him meat, he would eat it because it's rude not to. And it wasn't, the, his view was the meat had already been bought. It wasn't his fault the meat had been bought. So he might as well eat it because it was there and it had been cooked for him. It was generous and nice to do that. I will apply the same principle exclusively to Nikki's cooking. <laughs> not just to bananas, but just Nikki's Partly cooking. because Nikki's cooking is delicious 
And partly because I'm a little bit frightened of Nicky. The football is another subject suggestion from a listener, which this week is about the difference between watching football on TV to being there in person. It will give us an inordinate amount of time to try and appear not too braggy about going to a lot of live football. Uh, that is to come. You can get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Now, we have two contributions in the further ado section of the show this week. Only two because uh, they are long, but also because one is thoughtful and one is about something that I want to talk about. So it gets in the show for that reason. Firstly, the former and it comes from David Tyndall at a time that is, of course, exactly a year before we will be in the midst of the Qatar World Cup. Dear Jet, Saracen, Hunter and Wolf. Amazing. Which is amazing. Everybody will know that. Gladiators, uh, the UK version. Um, And uh, just a quick note, I found out recently that my wife has met Jet. No. What? I am jealous of my wife for a number of reasons. That is primary amongst them. I've I've told you before, Jet used to work in the leisure centre that was attached to my high school. Jet literally worked next door to where I went to school. Are you still in touch? (laughs) All the time. In fact, Uh, she's become a bit of a menace. (laughs) Leave me alone, Jet. Um, This is from David, a fifth email sent, he said, hoping the fourth to be read out on the show. So please refer to the previous correspondence for positive feedback. Also, a discreet way of indicating possible progress to Buffalo status without asking directly, although that is you asking directly. I'm not sure if this could warrant a standalone episode. It's in the correspondence section, David, so therefore no. Or merely fill a few minutes in the preamble section, so therefore yes. However, I find myself considering more and more the moral dilemma that anyone involved in football finds themselves in, particularly fans. That is the various corrupt and oppressive regimes and people that seemingly control and own all of our game. Now, that might be a full uh, episode. However, uh, this is uh, for today. In the recent past, see the Saudi takeover of Newcastle and, of course, the upcoming Qatar World Cup. A previous email of mine touched on this, and I've since wondered how to approach the World Cup as a fan without passively supporting or endorsing it. For fans as well as players, I feel it's incredibly unfair that the game we love or have spent years perfecting leaves us with a moral choice to make at all. However, as someone in the marketing profession, I've found a solution which at least in some way may provide a tangible objection and by emailing you and your reach of, I'm sure, tens of millions of listeners Mm. could be amplified. A quick check of the FIFA website reveals six primary sponsors who I won't name and give any exposure to. At a top level, advertising works by building unconscious positive associations for brands and products in the hope that when you come to purchase a soft drink, for example, you choose that product without thinking about it or even knowing why. Most listeners will instinctively already know the brand in question, such as this power of the association, when done well and over decades. San Pellegrino. (laughs) I do like my fizzy orange. At a more considered level, the aim is that when making an expensive purchase, you are really assured by the familiarity and the reputation of the brand. Of course, these six, prom. <laughs> of course these six companies <laughs> want to be associated with top-level football and the kind of enjoyment dreams and national come together that only a World Cup can provide. Most consumers slash fans won't actively connect to them the death of migrant workers, and if they did, the sponsorship would shoot, would soon stop. My solution is to move the six sponsor brands into my conscious mind, and I intend to not only avoid them, but actively choose to purchase a competitor product whenever possible. I could already tell there would be a huge degree of whataboutery, given all major corporations have some skeletons in the closet, but by doing this, I can at least try and enjoy the World Cup with a little less guilt. We have to pick our battles. So the next time you're thirsty, choose Pepsi. The next time you want sport or San Pellegrino, the 
next time you want sporting goods, avoid the three stripes. The next time you need a large real estate enterprise, well, you get my point. As I'm getting on closer to 40 than 30, I in no way naively believe this will make any real difference in the same way that refusing to watch the tournament won't. Personally, though, I will be ensuring that the few cents paid to FIFA by these companies to get my eyeballs on their brand will not only have been wasted, but directly increase the profitability of their competitors in that a way that I won't be endorsing Qatar 2022 in any way. After all, it all comes down to money. All the best and thank you for the ever-excellent podcast. That is from Dave Tyndall. Good approach. Yeah, like it. Um, or FIFA are really going to appreciate the extra traffic from our tens of millions of listeners millions. as they just double-check which of those brands are that they now need to avoid. Yeah, check it on Google. Yeah. Yes, oh, no, they're bad as well, aren't they? <laughs> FIFA's incredibly difficult to navigate website, I should add, by the way. Check, check it out instead on Ask Jeeves. I'm sure they could do with some traffic. Oh, yeah, let's, let's, let's throw our weight behind Ask Jeeves. That's a really good idea. The other email today comes from Chris Amirolt. I hope I've pronounced your name correctly, Chris, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I've included it because it will educate roughly 66% of the gathered contributors. It makes reference to both SPM 252 on Playbooks, an excellent topic suggestion by me, and indeed the NFL, an excellent sport. Dear John King, Dave Allen, Hugo Burnham and Andy Gill, that needed a Google. Ask Jeeves couldn't help me. It's a band called The Gang of Four, if you weren't familiar with that. I'm writing for the first time thanks to your SPM 252 discussion of Julian Nagelsmann's playbook exploration and the resulting comparison between global football and NFL football. Apologies for the delay, as I had to play catch-up after two weeks with spotty data and Wi-Fi on holiday. Excellent work. Nonetheless, Chris, I thought to add one more contrast related to difference in personnel structure between the two sports and will strive to make it non-boring. You have set yourself up for failure. This year, thank you, COVID, a Nagelsmann is allowed five substitutes for his 11 on-field players, and those substitutes can only enter at a break-in play, corner, injury, foul, and so on, permanently replacing their teammates. Meanwhile, Andy Reid, who remembers the original part of the discussion because they had had a conversation about it, coach of Kansas City Chiefs, can substitute off anyone he likes between plays, allowing the replaced player to return repeatedly. To allow for this, he has nearly double the suited roster from which to choose, with 46 players available at game time and an additional seven roster choices who are not suited. The large rosters in NFL-style football resulted from the move away from a one-platoon system in the 1940s in which all 11 players are on the field during both offensive and defensive plays. The platoon system used for all football-slash-soccer, of course. Indeed, most teams now have three platoons, the offence, the defence and special teams. Over the coming decades, situational specialists increased exponentially throughout all levels of NFL-style football. This paragraph is for Stephen specifically. So, for example, on their special teams roster, nearly all clubs have not one but two types of players who put ball to foot. A punter, who typically arrives for one fourth down play to kick the ball out of his hands to the opposing team. And a kicker, who arrives for one play, either to attempt an extra point or field goal, or to kick off at the start of a half or after his team scores. They are there to do one very precise job, and their attempts to do other jobs, such as tackling, reveal the limitations of such specialisation. Like certain strikers recently acquired by, say, PSG and Manchester United, you don't ask them to play defence. Unlike the small number of elite European players, this NFL-style NFL specialisation now occurs all over the field. Some of these positions bear some similarity to football, soccer positions, such as left-sided players. The offensive linemen who protect a right-handed quarterback's blind left side when passing are precious commodities on NFL teams in particular. But many NFL players are so specialised that they come in for a tiny number of plays per game, if at all, depending on the on-field level required for a given situation and corresponding play. The classic example is the long snap centre 
called to snap the ball through his legs for a longer distance than the usual centre, enabling the kicker to be further back from the line of scrimmage than the quarterback would be. With the exception of offensive players running with the ball in the open field, NFL star specialisation demands execution of the play, using their talent to perform the role, not unleash their creativity outside that role. An NFL player deciding to do something other than that, which is expected of his position in the play, would be benched immediately and not rewarded with plaudits for individual genius. This is all to say that the 500 entry playbook is built upon a personnel structure that is largely absent outside of NFL football, including all major US team sports as well. Major League Baseball allows for 26 players, far more than the National Hockey League and the National Basketball Association, but less than half of the NFL. Given the comparative personnel constraints that Nagelsmann faces, it's difficult for me to see what gains could be made by an already powerful Bayern team that has been built on high-quality players who, whatever their specialised talents, are expected to perform many functions on the field for their hefty wages. Finally, it is hard to see the appeal of an NFL-style overhaul of this size on a sport that, whatever its flaws, retains a beauty I think we all appreciate. Keep up the good work. That is sincerely from Chris in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Do you not read that, though, and think... Some of these people could probably do more than one job. That's my my immediate reaction. I get annoyed in baseball that they have people who who are specifically there to throw. Make them hit. Make one of the hitting guys throw it. Could they, like I refuse to believe that a centre or whatever yeah. who can do a short snap couldn't also do a long snap. I mean that isn't too much to ask. A pu- Instead of having a punter, why not just get one of your other guys to kick it? They literally just kick it. It's not hard. What's particularly amusing is because there aren't backup punters or backup backup kickers on on the match day roster available or indeed in a full roster it's 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 funny to, to to see if one of them goes down injured how they cope because they don't really they have to change their entire game plan because they haven't got a kicker regarding the long snap center ge- genuinely yes you're absolutely right but if somebody is so good at doing that job to the point that it it makes them better they will provide for that and the roster because as you all know Marginal gains matter. But why not then train the long snap guy to be a short snap guy? Because he might not be as good at doing the other stuff that a centre is required to do because the centre snaps the ball, but he then has to block those on-rushing defenders who are trying to get to the ball. Mm. It's, it's, mm. It, it ends up Ridiculous. sounding so methodically engineered yeah. that it's closer to F1 than normal football. Um, Chris and all our NFL fans, take that uh, sentence from Stephen, put it in an email, send it back to us and let uh, let me know how many of the words I can say and how many I can bleep out. Uh, correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. So to our subject this week, which like so many excellent suggestions that aren't mine and don't relate to the NFL, comes from a listener. This is Brendan Greer. Although his email moniker, I should tell you, is Aslan Greer, because either A, he has the appearance of a lion, or B, he is an allegory for God. I really hope it's the former. Brendan writes this, Dear Emil, Alfred, Istvan and Harry, Google nor Ask Jeeves were particularly helpful on this. Um, It took me a little while. I can only assume, after some searching on the internet, that it is the Budapest String Quartet's original lineup from the late 19th century. (laughs) Hang on, what are the names? Emil, Alfred, Istvan and Harry. I don't know. Yeah, well, you do some Googling. Istvan Cosma? It's, it, if you do some Googling, it comes up with the Italian Wikipedia entry for the Budapest String Quartet. Uh, we're not going to all Google that, but if you have time, see if I'm wrong. Uh, I haven't heard, and upon a reasonable but not exhaustive search of the 70 or so episodes I seem to have missed when I was not commuting last year, 
I have not found an episode discussing the huge experiential difference between watching a televised game versus watching a game in person. As we learned this past year and a half, presence or absence of fans is a different but also huge issue. Rather than go on and on about the difference, which I could, I'd like to hear you do so. If you already have, I'd like to know the episode number. We haven't. That's why we're doing it now. Thanks from Brendan Greer. P.S. I still don't commute much, but I ride a bike and row a machine, so I am staying current and working through the following pack. Uh, well done, Brendan. Congratulations for that part of it. So simply, what is the difference between being there and watching it on TV? We've all been fortunate enough to attend hundred, hundreds of games, maybe even thousands of games, at least combined. So here is our chance to articulate our own experience without any trace of pomposity or arrogance. Um, I don't know who wants to go first. You're a lot warmer when you're at home. That is a benefit. There is no and dress code requirement, that's for sure. You don't have to make small talk with people you only vaguely tolerate. You can go to the toilet in privacy. Yeah. And uh, the concession stand is a lot cheaper. Yes. It's just really you flicking on a kettle. But... And reaching into the biscuit barrel. Flip side... At some point, someone will try to ask you a question about interior decor. <laughs> yes. And you'll have to swat a child aside, um, which actually oh, yeah, the, happens in both environments. To be fair, the, the one thing I've noticed about fatherhood is that that 4.30, 5.30 kickoff slot, that, like, like the early evening kickoff slot just doesn't work for me. It's, I mean, it's really inconvenient. They shouldn't play games then. Although what you can do if you're at home, you can pause it if you are lucky enough to have uh, the kind of uh, television package that allows you to do that. So there is there, that is one kind of modern aspect of it. What we should do is we should split split not only the television experience and also the being at the stadium experience. We should also make the very, very important difference that is being a fan watching at the stadium and being a journalist watching at the stadium. Because I've certainly found this having probably been to more games not as a fan over my life, I think I've just about flipped that balance now, where when you are watching as a fan in the stadium, you do what you are forced to do when you are watching at home, which is to follow the ball, because your, in, your emotions are driving your experience. You will spend your entire time hoping for something to happen or hoping for something not to happen. And to do that successfully, you tend to watch the ball. When you are a journalist, you do not have that emotional engagement in the same way. You are looking for other things and therefore your, your experience is not weighed, weighed down mm. to the direction of travel of the ball. And that the, is a huge difference of how you experience the game. The, the thing to remember about that though, Hugh, is that when you're there as a, gen, as a journalist, you've generally got one of the best seats in the house, the kind of seat that you would never have been able to afford to pay for if you were buying your ticket. So I do think it, it, it depends where you are sat in the ground as to that following the ball thing and how heavily invested you become in, in, in small details. Certainly, I've, I found that with the, with the kids, taking them to, to Premier League games when we've been, is that I would sit nearer the front with them than I would choose to do otherwise because that gives them that experience of the sights and the sounds, getting close to the action being as about as close as you can get to the players and the ball when it's on that side of the pitch. Whereas if I was choosing for myself, I would be sat further back where I, I got a wider perspective of, of what was going on. So yeah, but, I think but, but a lot of that stuff depends on where you sit in the ground. Yeah. But you've also, you've taken them to games and I've attended games mm. as a non fan, but also not working. So there's that little gap in between yeah. where you wouldn't be sitting in the journalist seats, which admittedly, yes, are positioned to give you a good view of the whole game. But say, for example, I'm at one end. If I've gone with a friend to their team's game, I'm not emotionally engaged in it. And I will still watch it differently, even though I'm sat 
in a place which doesn't allow me yeah. that opportunity. Look, I think that the the broader difference is that to talk about how your experience of, of, of consuming the game changes is that you being in the stadium, you get a much broader sense of what is happening yeah. that, that television just doesn't give you. And that's not to criticize the way that football is broadcast, but TV necessarily follows the ball, follows the, follows the, the people who are currently kind of determining where that ball goes. And whereas, about a third, even the widest shot is yeah. about a third of the pitch. I remember someone once said to me, it's the equivalent of trying to gauge a room by looking through the keyhole. That's basically what yep. that's, that's not, and that's not far off. Whereas, so you will quite often come away from a game that you have been at, regardless of your, of your perch at that game. And you will see the reaction on the TV from pundits or from fans or whatever it might be, or, or the reaction on social media from people who've watched it on television. And you will think, well, hang on, no, I'm not quite sure that that player did play badly. I think that player maybe played quite well. Or the converse, you might mm -hmm. see someone being praised and you think, well, no, no, that wasn't what I saw at all. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that can be down to the fact that people interpret football differently. But I think partly it's because television creates a distortion in terms of who has been active and inactive, who has uh, who has done their job well. I think maybe that's what it is, isn't it? That you, when you when you're there and you can kind of take the take the scene in in the round you're much more able to determine which jobs everyone has clearly been given to do yeah. and how well they have accomplished those jobs. Not all of those jobs will appear on the television very often because a lot of those jobs are about the boring bits of football, like mm. filling in space and blocking off lanes and generally doing the sort of grunt work that tends not to attract the attention. So you can quite often... Trying to think what example it would be. I remember watching years ago. I remember I was at the uh, when I was working on Merseyside. I was at the, the Liverpool four Arsenal four game when Arshavin scored four times. And at the game, it made perfect sense to say Andre Arshavin did nothing except score four goals. And that sentence didn't seem as ridiculous. Does Arshavin barely touch yeah. the ball? He just scored four goals. Um, and that didn't seem a ridiculous thing to say while you were at the game because that was what happened people who watched the game on television would have would have told you that Andre Arshavin was one of the central characters in the drama, which of course, in a sense, he was because he scored four goals and ultimately he scored four goals. But he wasn't really involved in the game in any real sense. He just happened to score four goals. And I think that that's quite an extreme example. It probably doesn't help my case. But that's the main difference is that you when you see how the two teams affect each other and interplay with each other and interact, you get a... In, in the flesh, you get a much broader sense of who has done what well and who's done what badly. You're much, from being at the game, and I think this applies whether you're there as, as a working or as a fan, you're much more swept along by the emotion of the occasion, mm. which is why you would have sensed from from that 4-4 game that Arshavin popped up in those moments and those were the moments that stuck stuck in your head with clarity. Whereas if you're watching on television, you're seeing a, a more filtered experience because initially the, the, the camera view filters it for you, but then you're also getting the reinterpretation of that through the replays, through the analysis, through the, what the commentators are saying. So you, you get added layers at home, which, you know, and, and you may feel they help you, they may feel they hinder the experience depending on on how much you believe being at, at the game is is the preferable uh, way of of consuming it but definitely you you get swept along by the occasion that was something definitely noticed as a commentator 
when the football was being played behind closed doors. When I watched it on television, I I, I didn't really get the sense that I, I felt like I was watching, still watching elite level football. And therefore, how much influence did the crowd really have on the game? Whereas when you were at a match commentating on it, that was when you really noticed how badly that soundtrack, the noise, the emotion that that aided you as a broadcaster and therefore you would assume aids the players as well was being missed because it is the emotion of the occasion that you, you cannot replicate watching at home. But also the, 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 one, the other thing I noticed from going to Behind Closed Doors, James, is that the it's the crowd that enables you to interpret what's happening. Yes. The crowd en masse. Individually, the crowd, and this is something we say quite frequently, individually as people, we don't really have any kind of real idea as to what's happening on a football pitch because there's lots of things that are going on that are quite complicated. Mm. Um, and there's a, also there's a lot, there's just a lot of stuff happening. The crowd is quite often gives you the cues, and this is important as a journalist, yeah, yes, which is the, the, the main way that I consume live football is as a journalist that you quite often are doing something during the game. You you are writing, you know, you're writing what you're, you're building the piece, you're, you might be doing a bit of research, you might be, you know, there might be a player who who's just scored and you want to find out how many goals they scored in their last six games, you know, what, or you want to see to the do, form. We have or, to do that before, commentators have to do that beforehand. Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's different skills. You can't Google it during <laughs> the game. You've got to Google it during the game. I mean, I suppose some journalists probably do it beforehand. But the, it might well be that you, yeah, that a player's come on who you're not expecting to come on or has, has had a central role in it that you weren't necessarily focusing on and you're a bit like, oh, I should find out. Or even, to be honest, it, it's quite often you need to check if someone's an international. You know, if you've got kind of a, a Czech player who mm. you're not that familiar with you, and you, you're pretty sure they're an international, you need to check if they're an international. So you, just so you can describe them as a Czech international um, rather than just a Czech. Just a, and, a run and of the mill. Just recently, make sure they're not outside the statute of limitations of being exactly, a Czech. exactly. yeah, yeah, a former Czech international. The um, rather than just some random run of the mill Czech. The so you're not always watching the the pitch. You you can't. You've got other things to do. Unlike a commentator who who watches the pitch whilst consulting their notes. It's a skill that that only few only only a few are chosen. The um the. <laughs> He needs so much like, <laughs> reinforcement. The, can, can, just, no, 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 you can't. Him. You can't, Hugh. No, I've not made my He's, point. I've it was going to be relevant. It was going to be 10 seconds relevant but to that. You, but don't, you, don't worry, I'll come back when it's not relevant. You need the crowd. The crowd tells you what's happening. Yeah. Does the crowd en masse yeah. as a group detect the emotional shifts in yes. the game? A crowd can detect a momentum shift. A crowd can tell you when something is dangerous. You can follow a football match live just from the sound because they th there is a different sound from oh, this is a bit worrying, to, oh, no, this is all going wrong. Those are but different sounds. You do sounds. that at home as well, though. You do that at home. It was the whole thing about when, when there were no fans, you yes. needed that soundtrack to, 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 you know, to grab your attention because, you know, you would have been doing something with Ed or you'd have been reading something or checking if they're a Czech international on the internet whilst you're at home. These things also help you at home. Yes, oh, absolutely, yeah. But in, in the ground, you get a much more immediate sense of it. And without them, without those noise cues, it, the, the, the games seemed to be, seemed to me to be a lot more 22 people on a pitch running around rather than there being a kind of holistic hmm. narrative structure to the game. And I think that was what you, and I, th I think that probably applies to the players and it's why you, you will quite often see, you know, a, a player chases 
chases down a lost cause or puts in a thundering tackle. And it seems to be a totally kind of, you know, just another moment in a series of thousands of moments. But it can have it can have a massive impact on the nature of the game. And that sounds like overwrought emotional nonsense that Michael Cox would tell you is is some sort of intangible romantic rubbish. But I think in in having watched hundreds and hundreds of games live, is definitely true that games turn on tackles. They turn on on a player putting in an extra sprint that that gets the fans riled up. It turns on a controversial decision from the referee which annoys the home crowd. That that changes yeah. the atmosphere and the mood in the stadium and that changes the dynamic of the game. And I think you can only detect that truly when you're there because often those things are not the things that are central to the shot. Yes, and that's also interesting because have you also found occasions where you have reacted to that emotional narrative or or the soundtrack differently to perhaps how it had been at home because they had been they had been led down a certain path by the the decision makers either of the you know the director um, or the editor or the commentator and the co commentator because there is there is I think um, there must be occasions where you've written a piece and then you've come off the back of doing it and you've gone home and you say oh uh, hang on a minute they they're, they're talking about it. not that you've missed an important part of the story but you know you've interpreted it differently because you are experiencing it raw whereas mm-hmm. those who are massively in the majority those people who have watched it at home via mm. the commentator and the commentator uh, the co-commentator they have maybe reacted to it in a different way so for example if you if you're watching it dispassionately, you might think the referee has done a good job. And then you speak to a fan just afterwards who obviously has a vested interest and say, no, the referee was terrible. Now, you might think that the referee was terrible based on the fan's reaction, or you might think that, no, he wasn't. The fans got it wrong. So there's always a different interpretation, even of those kind of emotional cues that you are getting. Well, when you're at the game, there are other people around you to validate your interpretation of what you've seen or how you were feeling about the game at that point. Whereas if you're watching at home, even if you've got friends around you, you're making an occasion of it, that that swell isn't the same. And you might get the immediate contradiction from the television coverage, from what the commentator says, or from what the refereeing expert is brought in to to add a few seconds later, whereas at the game, you can ride the quest, crest of the wave. What the rest of the world thinks, what the neutral observer, what the more balanced opinion is, is irrelevant. You're able to, to run with how it, this all-consuming experience, which can afterwards, you know, you might have a bit of a, a crash back down to earth because... When you have to relive it, you see that maybe you were wrong at the time or you have to come to understand why certain things happened. But it doesn't matter. It's sort of you're part of this homogenous mass, aren't you? And I think that I think that fits around the game as well. That was the other thing. It's the essence of the experience of going to the game. It's a, it's a day long experience unless you happen to live incredibly close to the ground. You know, it's it's the getting ready a couple of hours before. It's the traveling too. it's the it's the the habitual stuff that you do what you're listening to, who you are with, what you're talking about. It's the coffee, it's the beer, it's the burger, it's the hot dog on the way. Those those things that are part of the routine of going to the game. It's that sense of community as, as you get closer and closer to the ground, more and more people all moving in the same direction, moving together. 
this this swell of humanity that takes you towards the ground, the smells, the noise, the sights, the anticipation. It doesn't matter whether it's a top of the table clash or you know a, a, a mid table game. That it, it it feels special as you arrive, and and it's that tribal thing. You feel part of a greater whole for for that moment that afternoon the duration and then again the same applies afterwards you know getting your reaction whether it's on the phone seeing what other people are saying about it listening to to the local radio you know to the phone in getting the getting the clips you know in more modern times you know getting the clips on your phones re reliving the big moment seeing again how it was to the outside world it, it, it's the whole essence of the experience of going to the game is it enhances it hugely. I don't think, however much you try and replicate it at home, and there are certain aspects of it you can replicate, you, you can't get close. That, that, just quickly on that, because there is a, there is a fragility in, uh, of hope when you are watching something that you're emotionally engaged with on your own because you don't have that camaraderie to underpin it, to make it more foundational, to give it to give it strength. When you are all going to a football game and you are amongst those who share that hope, it is so much stronger. And of course it can be dashed and therefore be emotionally on the other side when it is. But, but when you're watching your team on television and you're alone, you almost don't dare to have that hope because you have nobody to soften Hmm. the possible negatives of it being dashed. Well, it's the strength that you draw from being around people who all want the same thing. And it's hard when there's tens of thousands of people who all want the same thing not to believe that that has some sort of impact. And the chances hmm. are it doesn't really, that what happens on the pitch is, is unrelated to the, to the stage against which it's being played. But you, you can feel, you feel that electricity, you feel that tingle, you feel the belief that all of these, all of this kind of, sea of humanity that wants the same thing you believe that we're probably preconditioned to believe that that has some sort of impact on on what actually plays out whereas when you're at home you're seeing it i think you probably get more nervous at home don't you mm. is that not right yeah, because you, 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 you haven't got the the other, the other people there yeah. to help you, you feel you more don't feel as though you've got any control over yeah, what's happening exactly. whereas you feel it in the crowd you feel you as though us. you have some sort of influence that if you shout a bit louder maybe maybe that will get these good for nothing players up for the game um but also you it's hard. I think you get a much more. If you took, if you could strip the emotion away as a fan, you get a much broader. So there's that thing that the that the, the you know the, the 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 fans who go to the game are always the, the last to turn on a manager, always the last to demand change, and that when when the fans in the stadium have turned, that's when clubs know they have a problem. And we you know we saw during the pandemic that um, or during the 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 ghost game period that that clubs stopped sacking managers and that to an extent was financial. I think to an extent it was to do with, um, with an awareness that an increasing awareness of things like regression to the mean and, and, and analyzing, un, you know, underlying data to say, actually, do you know, the performances aren't that bad. But I think partly it was to do with the fact that the fans never got the chance to turn and it's ultimately it's fans that get, get managers sacked just once the stadium's gone, it's really hard to get them back with, with Solskjaer this season, it felt like when, Old Trafford started to boo. That was the final thing that me that basically made it impossible that he could continue long term. But after the five 0 to Liverpool, they they booed them off the pitch. They, the fans in the stadium felt humiliated, and and the, the affection went basically. Um, the reason that fans in the stadium are the, la are the last to turn is probably because they see they see the the thing in the round, so they will be able to see, except in extreme cases, even on a run of 
five defeats, they may well be able to see things that make them think, actually, that's not that bad. We didn't really deserve to lose that. So perhaps we don't need to boo just yet. It's interesting, actually, that it strikes me that fans boo a lot earlier in bad runs now. And I think that's to do with the, the way people are conditioned through the media. But the re- yeah, generally, home fans will, will turn later than television fans and away fans will turn later than home fans. And it's because, I suspect, they see enough in except in the most dire circumstances, to give that hope reason to stay alive rather than if you're at home, if you watch a succession of five defeats at home on TV with loads of pundits telling you that your team are rubbish and without seeing the bits off the ball that might make you think actually that wasn't that bad. And, and the without experiences away from the 90 minutes as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. That, but well, that, that, uh, the sense of community it's almost yeah because you, you you just i think you quite rightly just define the difference between the sort of three thousand that would go regularly away and the thirty thousand plus that are regularly at home it's it's almost it's not to say that any type of support is greater than any other we've had that no, discussion no, numerous times but the closer you feel to the community the more central central a role you feel you play in the community, the stronger your sense of loyalty because because you value your position at, at the centre of the circle. Yeah, no, there's no one perspective that's better yeah. or more correct than the others. And often yeah, yeah. when the TV fans turn, the, dis- the remote, not TV fans, that sounds disparaging, but the remote fans turn, that is a pretty good sign that things aren't going well. They're not, yeah. no fan is predisposed. It's a barometer. Well, it's a decent barometer. Mm. I think when the home fans go, you, you've probably got a problem. And when the away fans go, you really should just leave. The it's because the each perspective is different, and it, some of them are a bit sharper. Some of them, some of, to an extent, maybe the the away fans' perspective is a little bit a little bit foggier. It's not they're not quite as seeing it quite as clearly as as or as dispassionately as as other fans, um, because they they are seeing signs of hope where they where where they should be looking at the bigger picture. Yeah. They are they are drawing on the on the very small details, and their community bonds are even stronger. They're travelling to the game on buses together, on trains. It is an all-consuming aspect of their life. You know, once every ten days, they are undertaking sometimes substantial journeys together, and and it becomes part of their life beyond the game itself. So the two things become quite. I would imagine it's difficult to detach. Yeah. Or the, the association becomes strong, doesn't it, between an, an important part of your life is is that travelling to away games. So, yeah, it, that that loyalty, that sense of community, the hierarchy within that that community, you you will be the last to turn. The I think the I mean the, the the root of it is basically that your perspective, if you're watching remotely, your perspective is necessarily refracted through mm. at least one of the person's eye, the cameraman's. Or the, maybe the directors. You're 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 being di- being directed as to what to think. When you're at the game, you're not. Although your perspective there as a fan is invariably influenced by your emotion. And I always remember at Wigan, the press box at Wigan, which both of you will have been to. Yep. There were some old fans, some old proper Lancastrian gentlemen who sat directly in, in front of the press box at Wigan. And Hugh is smiling because he knows I've told this story before. No, no, no. You've told the story about Huddersfield before, which is which is also... Oh, long, that, yeah, that was really funny. I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. I'd forgotten that. That was a good story. This is not a good story. <laughs> but these, the, there were these two old fellows in, in white jackets and flat caps who were there every time I went to Wigan. So I presume they were there every other week. 
and in all the time I went I went to Widden, which was a lot over like a three year period, Widden genuinely never conceded a throw in that they thought was correctly awarded <laughs> against them. They 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 were convinced that every throw in had taken a deflection off an opposition player. They and it, they held it sincerely. They were they were at the game, but they were not seeing it more clearly because they were at the game. They they the their partisanship clouded their judgment. That's, I love the idea that after they've retrieved their whippets from the whippet park outside, which is, I assume, the, the way that you've described them, and uh, were making their way home, that they would be complaining that they only got 80% of the f- throw-ins that day. Did you, you see those? T- we, won, we won 4-0, but um, they got 20% of the throw-ins. Oh, that bloody linesman, he was absolutely bastard. He just kept giving the opposition throw-ins just as one of our players bolted it out. <laughs> The um, it was extra- no, genuinely. It was I mean, well it was- done, both of you, for trying some sort of Lancastrian accent. I'm not entirely sure either of you nailed it. I still, well, Widden's I didn't a- try. I'm fairly sure I didn't even try. <laughs> Widden's a funny one, though, isn't it? Because Widden's not full Burnley and Blackburn. It's it's slightly more manked than that. It's not full on Lancashire. Well, if somebody the, wants to try that, they're very welcome. Kate, Katie being from Wigan and currently in the next room means I should perhaps tread a little bit more carefully. Well, that is that is how Katie talks with that really deep <laughs> yes, gruff voice. Yes, and she, she, and she, she does have a, wha- from the whip a wax it. jacket <laughs> exactly. and, a, and a flat cap. But no, I think, so I, th- I think I mean, this is not an attempt to like, aggrandise journalism, but go into a game as a neutral where your only interest is, is in making sure something interesting happens so you've got something to write about. The... That is a is a that again is a different perspective to being being a fan. You are maybe able to see. You quite I, I quite often will go to a game that I have no vested interest in, and think. Part, well, partly you see things coming. So I remember Newcastle Spurs, the first game under the Saudi ownership. There was this real sense of triumphalism around Newcastle for the first ten minutes, but you looked at them and you thought, nope, this isn't going to hold. Spurs are clearly a lot better than them, um, and you see that despite the noise in the stadium, because the noise in the stadium is unrelated to what's actually happening on the pitch. Um, it was the same. It was the same as a couple of weekends ago when I was up there for the Burnley game. You know, the the atmosphere was phenomenal. The roar when Callum Wilson scored, the jubilation at full time. My goodness, it, it it was just took your breath away. But it didn't detract from the fact that Newcastle had scraped a one nil home win against Burnley. Bit, and, and also, you said Rory about it being if you're at home being refracted through the lens of at least one person. And it could be the lens of that camera, or it could be the voice of the person, the presenter, the pundit, the the, the co-commentator, the commentator. But the, but they will often have an opinion of that game based on their emotional connection with it, and that therefore will very passionately disagree with the person who is refracting that to yes. them. And so therefore, obviously, there is. A, unnecessary quite a lot of the time criticism of those people who have disseminated that information to them even though they are trying to do the job that everybody at that stadium or providing an an experience that everybody in that stadium is having but then refracting it to that view. Well I remember I tweeted after the Merseyside derby that does Jurgen Klopp had said that he didn't like the Merseyside derby because he thinks it's too physical and his comments were willfully misinterpreted by a lot of people um I tweeted that maybe he'd enjoy it more if he if he was listening to John Champion and, and Ali McCoyst during it because I thought their commentary was fantastic. I really really liked the the sort of the not overplayed badinage mm. between them, and I think McCoyst particularly John Champion's a, a a pro and he's really good, but McCoyst has a a refreshing ability to take pleasure from football matches, which mm. isn't always the case with co commentators. That there is the tendency that we've discussed previously to to pick fault in everything. Chinch has defended that eloquently as as part of his job, but I do think genuinely there's a there's a 
there are times when you just have to say that's brilliant mm. wasn't that brilliant um because we should celebrate the brilliant rather than seeking to to assign blame for allowing it to to flourish and i really enjoyed listening to them on commentary and i thought they were they were superb and a couple of the responses i got were from everton fans who said yeah it was disgraceful wasn't it because you know implying that mccoyce and john champion had been supporting liverpool during the game and i just sort of thought well I mean, maybe you could take the fact that they were praising Liverpool and criticising Everton as proof of their bias. Or, or maybe you could assume that Liverpool beat Everton 4-1 and Everton were bad during the game. Like they, I didn't, I, It didn't occur to me that Ali Matois was, was being a bit harsh on Everton because Everton were terrible for vast periods of the football match and kept giving Liverpool goals. And I don't know a lot about football, but I know that one of the things you're not meant to do is give your opposition goals. Hang on a minute. Celebrate the brilliance, Rory. Don't don't assign blame. You can celebrate the brilliance. And Salah's second, where the, the, the Seamus Coleman mistake, celebrate the, the run and the finish, although I think the finish was a bit lucky, to be perf- perfectly honest. But you also have to point out that Seamus Coleman presented him with the ball. Yeah. And you've also got, going back to last week, a little bit of what we talked about, you've also got to... Add into that that Seamus Common got a hospital pass from Damari Gray, which yes. made giving yeah. away the ball all the more yeah. easy. And, yeah. and, and if Chinch so, was here, and we, we should reflect uh, a little bit of what he would say, is that he that if you watch it, like you, Rory, you've spoken about watching it, but also having to work. Steve, you are a commentator, so you have to watch the ball. Well, I've watched lots of games because I've done my work before the game and after the game where I can actually just watch watch the game and I don't have to follow the ball and I don't have to do any more than just make notes. So I'm in a, I'm in a position one would assume that the co-commentator is in that they are able to see the whole pitch where of course the television viewer doesn't, but they also have to try and reflect what happens outside of the view that you have on the television and then try and illustrate that to the viewer. So there is this kind of this middle ground that you are you are watching either as a co-commentator or as a, as a person who does their work at different times where you can genuinely watch the full pitch because you have the full view of the pitch and you can watch the right back making a run 70 yards away from the ball. You can spot those things because you have the fortune to be able to do that. But that is the co-commentator's job to look at that, to watch that and then to show that that audience at home what has happened the people at the stadium who are emotionally engaged and watching the ball don't get to see that so it's an interesting gap in their knowledge unless they happen to watch the the game back and that's where you get a little bit of the conflict and and i think it's worth saying especially as i'm I'm presuming a majority of our listeners consume the premier league in the main as well as others that watching on tv you do get the benefit of the expertise at every level of the coverage, mm. which enhances that experience. I think overwhelmingly you would say, look, being at the ground is an experience to savour and is the, the, the purest way to consume football. But if you watch the Premier League in particular, Rory's mentioned the cameramen all, uh, already, but you, you, as a general rule covering English football, amazing directors, operators in the truck at the at the ground making things like re- instantaneous replays the skill required to deliver that to your home big up the evs operators big EVS up the evs operators. <laughs> you know the the, the, this, the sound the atmosphere that you're getting and as a general rule i'd like to think that the commentary the co-commentary the punditry the presentation all enhances the experience for watching at home so there are definite pros to watching on tv it isn't just about you know live being better because of the, the expertise and the attention to detail that goes, you know, especially into covering the, 
the Premier League football that watching at home is is an experience to savour as well. That's yeah, that's absolutely absolutely true. The it, I suppose the parallel is is it the same as is it the equivalent of going to a gig and listening to a CD? Mm. And I think it's not because of the expertise that that Steve talks about that you do get the the gap is closed, although the the similarity is that ultimately the music is the same, and well, it's, it's, a, it's still football rather than you well, no, it's, it's still football. So it's yeah. not that there's no there's no value in the same way as listening to a you know to your favorite listening to like your Dua Lipa album at home is still is still enjoyable. The I don't know if people still make albums. Um, the <laughs> You they know do who Adele, Dua Lipa is, but you don't Adele know still one. make albums. Adele released an album. Um, the, the, but yeah, there's, 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 there is, the gap is closed. The gap has been, is closed by that, by that expertise of the broadcast, by the attempt to make it as entertaining as possible. It isn't just simply watching it in isolation with nothing, you know, like a bird's eye view of the, of the stadium, seeing the people run around on the pitch. There is a lot of the emotion of football is conveyed brilliantly through the telly. I think a close comparison to the idea of, uh, you know, going to a gig and listening to the CD would be that if the TV, the football you watched on television was just one fixed camera on halfway yeah. and microphones around the pitch to bring you the atmosphere, you it's enhanced so far beyond yeah. that that that's perhaps where the comparison would break down. And, and if anybody's looking for any career advice, and a lot of people get in touch and you know, say things like, what, what advice would you give, given the, 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 the roles that we have in the industry? All of us wish that we would have been EVS operators at the highest level because they get way more money. Actually, camera, camera operators as well. Camera operators and EVS operators. If you want a career that gives you incredibly, incredibly good match fees, that's what we recommend. So if you've learned nothing else, and um, I do appreciate the question, Brendan. I don't think that was the answer that you're hoping for, but still, it was an answer nonetheless. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review, as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Uh, once again, we thank you for your understanding regarding the postponement of the live show. That, that is something of a disclaimer. Thank you to Stephen and Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Really made me want to go to a game. I'm looking at the fixtures. <laughs> What's next? Gen- generally, I, inv- I avoid going to football matches in December because it's cold. But I now, St- Steve's description of kind of the, the day of the match, which was a kind of Lowry-esque painting of the emotion. It was beautifully involved, done. You can tell has, he's a commentator. Has made me think, do you know what? Maybe I could go to Burnley-Watford. Well, this, uh, well, <laughs> well there's I, no I, Crystal I'm Palace to... Burnley for you to enjoy for an, no. at least another few months. Rory, I'm going to Burnley-Watford. Come with me. Well, obviously you're going to Burnley-Watford. You're at together. Burnley as much as Sean Dyche. <laughs> He's getting very suspicious about how often he sees me. By the does, way, does he acknowledge? Like, does he acknowledge that you're there all the time? I think I think Sean Dyche is a bit confused because he doesn't see me as regularly as he sees the local guys, mm. but he sees me far too regularly, or or he sees me considerably more regularly than he would other sort of broadcasters from what, national yeah, organisations. Yeah. So he's start, a bit like, start wearing a disguise. I sh- yeah. <laughs> Or no, and maybe the opposite. Maybe you need a really like flamboyant moustache because then he would be like, "Oh yeah, you're the guy with the flamboyant moustache." <laughs> Although he wouldn't, he wouldn't say that. He'd be like, "You're the you're the guy with the flamboyant moustache. You're always here." Moustache, moustache, moustache. They've sent you again. No, that's a bit Ray Winston. He'd he'd say something like, "They've sent you again, have yeah. they?" Rather than you're the guy wearing fourteen layers whilst I'm stood here in my uh, shirt with the sleeves rolled up. Deitch is full on one hundred percent the guy who would say, "Here again, you must have done something bad in a past life." That is that is the the archetypal Sean Deitch. You're always at Burnley, Joe. Just just him and Glenn Hoddle with that view. 